0: This is my song, O God of all Nations, a song of peace for lands afar and mine, Saints Mary Travis with Peter, Paul, and Mary. For those of us at Solutions of Violence, as well as our guest today, Nia Kujovic, a song of peace is also our song hello folks we are solutions to balance we're happy you can join us today you're listening to forward radio wfmp 106.5 fM solutions to balance is a program of and sponsored by forward radio forward radio is an affiliate of the global fellowship for reconciliation the following is part of wfmp's public affairs educational programming the views expressed are those of our guests and not the station if you'd like to share your views you may contact us at solutions to balance 18 at gmail.com we'd love to hear from from you. Our guest today is Nina Kubitz. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is carolyn brooks johnson nina kovitz has been studying nonviolence and conflict resolution for more than a decade she's a peace education trainer and together with Rianika pelikerik published pate ebene in october 2019 since 2020 she has been implementing her own training program developing its content and recruiting participants being from the netherlands she cooperates with a dutch non-governmental organization foundation for active non balance, but it's called her own initiative, Peace Power.
1: Ms. Kovach, you have been studying nonviolence and conflict resolution for more than a a decade. Jim and I have been perhaps along the same timeline in in our work, uh, researching and teaching and learning more about nonviolence. Our interest is learning, of course, goes much further than our teaching time. But where did your interest begin with nonviolence and how did it peak for you? How did you know when you wanted to teach conflict resolution?
2: Yeah. I think it happened uh, gradually. So first, when I was maybe just 14 or so, I was very much shocked when a NGO came to visit our school, War Child, and I learned that our children my age who yeah, were kind of drugged and forced to be involved in war. And then many years later, when I studied uh, psychology, I found it very interesting why people act violently and what is the, the role of social pressure, et yeah. but within that studies of psychology and also also cultural anthropology that I was studying, there were no real answers for the questions that I had. So uh, I was looking for alternatives and then I found that there was quite a new study program, a master program called uh, Conflict Resolution and Governance. And this was an interdisciplinary program. So I could join that with my bachelor's in uh, psychology and anthropology. And then the first time that I really came in contact with the word nonviolence was when I went to Palestine. So there I got involved with an organization that wanted to promote nonviolence and different groups that were taking nonviolent action. And about one year later, uh, I could say it kind of came to its peak because I found a training program with the Meta Center in the United States. And there I really learned what nonviolence actually is and then I really felt that this was what I was really looking for and uh, what I found also so inspiring because I always wondered how like normal people could build peace from the ground and that uh, was something that the Meta Center was answering
0: Okay so Nina Kubitz, you earned a master's degree in conflict resolution in 2007 second in global studies this came from universities in Sweden this is a time when American colleges and universities were just beginning to include peace education curriculum. So a curriculum in these concentrations look like what you're studying. Courses, seminars, requirements, what else? Yes, um, also
2: in the Netherlands, it was quite a new program, as I said. Uh, When I studied it, it, conflict resolution was only three years old. So now I'm sure that they have included many more things. But at that time, I took courses about relationships between non-state actors and the state. So about civil society, things like that. Uh, And quite a general course in sociology, as well as an elective course course about the israeli-palestinian conflict so then it was about half a year we had uh, one course in research methods and then had to write the thesis i wrote my thesis about psychosocial aid for children in palestine so that uh, I kind of bridged a little bit my background in psychology with policy choices that NGOs were making and you also asked about the other program. So I digged into my memory for global studies as well. And we had courses about theories and perspectives of globalization. So thematic issues like um, what is the impact of globalization on the environment and uh, economy, things like that. Uh, I took a course in media and journalism and globalization in migration and power. And I did also an extra course uh, about conflict resolution just to kind of see what are the differences of how it is taught in the Netherlands and how it is taught in Sweden. And there also, uh, it was a two-year program and we had to write the thesis as well.
0: So quite an extensive background in peace education and conflict resolution. So, your home is the Netherlands. We'd like to know more about your homeland. But you uh, cooperate with the Dutch NGO non governmental organization, Foundation for Active Nonviolence in the Netherlands. Share with us a bit of the history of Foundation for Active Nonviolence, its purpose, its mission.
2: Yeah, so it started in 1966, almost 55 years ago. 25 people who were really inspired by uh, Gandhi and King. And they wanted to promote their ideas and start a study and training center in what they called uh, non-violent resilience. So there was a group who wanted to focus on spreading the information and they translated a lot of work from English into Dutch because there was at that time almost no Dutch uh, publications. So we have a huge library with many books, brochures and magazines. And then there was also a group that wanted to develop uh, training. So their purpose was to create possibilities to develop a more peaceful, respectful, and safer society through peaceful means and methods. And all their activities were to promote an active stance for justice and peace and equality, uh, equity, human dignity, as well as a respect for the natural world.
0: Um, so the, the Foundation for Active Nonviolence, is that also involved in international conflict? Does that deal with that with international conflict at all or is it just domestic uh
2: it is quite domestic i would say they don't really deal with international politics or international conflict They really are just more focused on uh, peace education so they did have international training programs also before i got involved and some solidarity actions they did
1: our contact with you came through the the meta center for Nonviolence. you mentioned that earlier and uh also a study guide that you put together with uh, Veronica Palkar. name of was Engaging Nonviolence, Activating Nonviolent Change in Our Lives and Our World. This is a, an expansive work, you and, and Veronica did. The, the program is designed, I understand, to be a, a small group learning process in personal and social transformation, appropriate for a wide range of settings. We'd like to explore the concepts and, and the process you laid out for engaging nonviolence. violence so let's continue with the general outline and contents of your book what there are three main parts to to describe the process part one is is exploring nonviolent power there's obviously a lot there but help us begin to understand what the aim is for your book engaging nonviolence.
2: yeah well the aim really was to reach a more international public than the previous book did it was um I guess, more in or more uh, aimed at uh, the United States. And yeah, we we want to give people really practical skills and we want also that um, more people will have the opportunity to learn about nonviolence. So with the book, um, we really give different exercises and instructions of how to implement them. So even people with little experience of being a trainer can follow those instructions and teach from the book to other people.
1: So is the book available to, uh, to like students as well as a trainer? Or how, how does that work?
2: Yes, it is up to the, to the trainer themselves. It is a book that can be used both for only trainers or for the students as well. So as the students, uh, you will just kind of skip the instructions to the trainers and you will still read the, the other parts of the book because it has many text boxes and other things to read. So also for the students, it is an interesting read.
1: Yeah, yeah. But we here at Solutions to Violence, want to keep in front of our audience that violence can appear in many different forms and actions. How do you go about familiarizing your audience with understanding violence?
2: Yeah, in different ways, of course. So generally in the book, we always want that people create their own definitions. So we have asked a couple of uh, questions in the book, for example, what is the role of outcome or intention in determining an act as violence? And we also have given uh, four different definitions in the case of violence, so that people can discuss about them and kind of make up their own mind. So we don't give one answer, but we instead like that people discuss so they come to their own uh, conclusions and also one uh, model that we have been using is from Johan Kautto it's the violence triangle so i always find that very helpful to understand non, uh, to understand violence because it clarifies that violence is always an expression or it is rooted in both cultural and institutional violence. So when you see uh, direct violence you can also see that there is often a chain, let's say of violence. So we give also the different examples in that with an exercise called the spectrum of violence. And then people determine how violent they think the examples are. So you will get, again, discussion between the different people. And one example of this exercise is that someone breaks into a house and the owner of the house shoots this person. The question is, how violent do you think that this act is? And then you can analyze in this example, uh, the house owner has a gun. So that is because institutions in the U.S. have not prohibited civilians to have guns, like in Europe, for example. So it is uh, institutional or structural violence. And you can also see that there is poverty, because otherwise they wouldn't be a burglar. So that's also institutional violence, right? And yes. uh, you could say it's cultural violence, because many Americans believe that they need to defend themselves with weapons. So in just this one example, you can see the direct violence, the shooting, the cultural violence and the institutional violence.
1: Yeah. So what is the us versus them thinking and, and doing?
2: Yeah, this was something that Veronica and I had long discussions about because we wondered if it should include uh, racism or gender-based violence also into the book. And then we thought that if we pick one or two marginalized groups, it will be hard to really stand for them, and why we decided not to include other groups. So, for that reason, we decided to kind of look more into the mechanisms of oppression and domination. And we have, in that session with that title, uh, we focus on the cycle of oppression. So, this is a cycle that starts with stereotypes. So, stereotypes are widely held and oversimplified fixed ideas of a group of people, And those stereotypes, they lead to prejudice. So a prejudgment of a person, right? That is based on those stereotypes. And uh, because violence is often systemic, and that person who belongs to the stereotype group will experience this many times over time. And that is what we call discrimination. And the discrimination then leads to oppression. So oppression is that one uh, more powerful group discriminates another less powerful group. And then that leads again to internalized oppression. So that means that the people of the marginalized group really start to believe that those stereotypes and discrimination are justified. And what you get is like a vicious uh, cycle of violence really. So we ask people to think about how they can break this cycle of oppression. And we give them real practical guidelines also to stop harassment and intimidation when they see it. And in that same chapter, we have an exercise called the ally Panel. And here, people from different marginalized groups, they, can, they are asked to sit in a panel and to explain how they would like people to be allies. So um, people can get really practical tips on that panel. And it is also in that way very relevant to the group because the, you cannot represent a group that you are not a member of. So it really will involve the issues that are present in that particular group. Oh,
0: okay. So Nina uh, Kuvitz, we hear, some of us here in, anyway, in the, in the States, in the United States, look at the Netherlands with some... Envy. Because we know you have much stricter gun safety regulations than we have here in the United States. Last year, 2020, 33,000 people died as a result of gun violence here in this country. Here in Louisville alone, 175 people died as a result of gun violence. Some 600 people entered here in Louisville in 2020. So the physical violence that exists in the Netherlands is dramatically decreased nowhere near the kind of violence we are experiencing here in the states that's correct and you uh, contribute that to uh, stricter gun regulations
2: yes i it was also a topic of discussion with veronica if we should include the issue of gun violence and in the end we didn't uh, because it is so controversial but as a european for me it is still really hard to understand, I must say, and yeah, it's just a huge cultural difference that the belief that you have to defend yourself or the government or your neighbors. So I really think that it makes a big difference because you may not always be in, yeah, in a calm state, let's say, to act responsibly or to act wisely, and this this can have really tragic consequences when you when you can just own a gun and I think also part of that is maybe that it is to some extent socially acceptable as well there are other forms of violence but I do think it makes a big yeah. difference and creates more safety
0: yeah we, we see yeah institutionalized violence yes uh, we see racism uh, solution to balance, us here at Solutions to Balance see racism as a form of balance for injustice, unfairness. That to us is also a form of balance. So, yeah, like you see it. So, two parts of your guide is where you focus on, quote, nonviolence in practice, end quote, and explore, quote, forms of power and nonviolence in action. How are these two related?
2: How nonviolence in practice and forms of power are related because in the um so the first session about uh, power kind of explains that you have different understandings of power over you could say that you can kind of decide for another person so we use two models in that chapter one is uh, the power within so that's the ability and inner strength that you can cultivate and the other is power with that uh, is the power that you can procreate with others Um, And the second model, it um, speaks about threat power, so we summarise that by the sentence If you don't do what I want, I do something you don't want. And then there is exchange power, so I will do something you want if you do something I want. And the third is integrative power, I do something you want because I want to do that or because I care. So these alternatives, they kind of open up new ways of thinking for people and how they can interact and how they can influence their surrounding uh, from a spirit of cooperation. And then nonviolence in action are different examples of nonviolence, uh, how it has been practiced. So we chose their four stories. And in two stories, it's more uh, an individual who practiced nonviolence and then the other two stories are uh, groups. So would you like me to briefly share the four stories?
1: Sure. Yeah.
2: One is that after the Second World War, there is a Russian lady that uh, offers a piece of bread to a defeated German soldier. And then many people follow her gesture. So you can say that is a power within, right? Like she had the strength to, to do something that, took a bit of courage because a German soldier at that time was perceived as the enemy. And another example is a a woman who shows compassion to a youth that killed her uncle. And instead of demanding that he will have a lifelong sentence, she proposes that he must read a whole list of books that includes the works of Martin Luther King. And then uh, the collective stories where groups of people have acted acted non-violently, is uh, one example from L.A. A group of mothers who uh, started to reach out to violent youth by making walks in their neighborhoods and they were handing out lemonade and snacks. And then they started to dialogue with this youth and they found out that the main reason that they got involved into crime and were hanging on the streets was actually that there were no job opportunities for them. So then they started to organize together with them the got also um, organized together and they uh, started a bakery together. And the last example is one in South America. I'm not sure in which country at the moment, but it was somewhere where some youths were playing football with a big stone. And then the stone comes into the car of a police agent and he's been shot dead. So, um, yes, this is... <laughs> I think also something that in different uh, degrees or with different twists of the story happens a lot. Like you can think about the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. And so this youth and the family of that boy, they organized a big carnival of life, a big demonstration. that was kind of like a party. And um, because of that, they didn't make a threatening impression on the police. And they also could dialogue with them and later even also dialogued with the government and the local municipality, and they were able to establish a human rights office in their neighborhood. Okay. So it are all kind of uh, examples as well of nonviolence and uh, different forms of power.
0: So emotional awareness, communication, and compassion are next in the guide. How do these actions have an impact on promoting or creating non-violent action
2: yeah as i explained uh, the book kind of came into existence through many conversations that veronica and i had so as we were kind of starting with this we first looked at the previous uh, study guide and that didn't have anything about kind of how to how to cultivate power within and then we said that this is really the the basis to start from so we wanted to have a chapter about emotional awareness that is also really important for becoming a more nonviolent person and developing uh, what we call nonviolent power. So we included that in the session to become more aware through a mixture of kind of Buddhist practices that Veronica uh, knew about. So it is also a lot about feeling more compassion for yourself. And uh, when you can do that, it will also become easier to feel that for others. And then the communication methods kind of naturally follow from that chapter. And there we mostly look at the uh, model from Marshall Rosenberg, nonviolent communication. So this uh, gives you very concrete suggestions for how you can be compassionate to others, which is by trying to understand others and trying to... Uh, understands what needs they are trying to fulfill. So the premise is that everyone tries to fulfill certain needs in life and when you identify those needs and people's feelings, then it becomes much easier to understand each other and to solve
1: disagreements. Yeah and next you guide us uh, in a planning uh, and strategy session. We, we have in the United States well, many other nations experience some major political and and social change in the last four or five years. So we know something about experiencing social change. What do you consider social change? And and how does one nonviolently, as you say, prepare for social change?
2: Yeah, so we um, don't really give many definitions in the book, as I explained. So my own understanding is social change is process, which and it is very broad. So it can be from ending poverty, to women's rights, to legalizing homeschooling. So it's really kind of an umbrella term to me. And we believe that nonviolence can really help to, to make all kinds of social changes that you wish. So you can prepare for that by first, of course, identifying your goals as a group and uh, learning about nonviolent action methods. So we are explaining in the book that uh, there are three main categories, and that's based on the work of Gene Sharp. Uh, you have demonstration and persuasion, non-cooperation and intervention. So there are really many, many examples that you could find that have been tried by millions of activists. And I would suggest everyone to look into that. Also, I want to add one sentence from Michael Neckler at the Meta Center that uh, he recently shared with me. So he said, use obstructive methods whenever necessary and constructive methods whenever possible. And I think that's a really good guideline to keep in mind because uh, many activists are kind of focused on stopping the harm that's being done or reaching politicians and reformers. But there's also the option to create your own alternatives. And that can be very powerful because it can replace eventually the existing way of doing things.
1: Yeah, you, you list four different roles that activists and social movements need for successfully creating social change. Citizens, rebels, change agents and reformers. What, what, why is it important to know our role in changing social me- mediums?
2: I think it is important because the roles that each of them play, they have a different and essential part in the process of creating change. It are first the rebels that um, bring an issue up and uh, say that something should be different. And then you have the change agents that try to organize around the issue and to reach out to other citizens. And so you have first the Uh, active citizens that spread the word eventually they are able to kind of mainstream you could say the issue and when they have done that then often it reaches the decision makers in institutions that can reform the existing structures so uh, while you don't always need reformers as i already said in some cases it's actually important of course that something is institutionalized and uh, it may also be the goal that uh, a certain group has. So I think the the model, which, by the way, is from Bill Moyer, it is very useful and simple, and people can just recognize themselves easily in one of those four roles and remember them. So that's why we chose to include this.
1: So they're not all one person?
2: Um, one person can sometimes take different roles. Uh-huh.
0: Sure. Well, that's interesting, ideas from Bill Moyer. American journalist. So your guide also uh, talks about sessions, better concerned with, quote, environmental action, end quote. A part of the agenda here is actively called, quote, talk show, end quote, and it focuses on the environment. Would you give us an idea of how you suggest we approach environmental nonviolent action?
2: Yes, we chose to include the issue of environment because in these days it is really urgent that we pay attention to it. So in the talk show it just kind of illustrates the urgency of the issue and it explains something about the ecological footprint and what it is. And the the session also has another exercise which is called responding to the crisis of the earth where we have identified five environmental topics where uh, nonviolent action groups have already organized around and we also stimulate people to research those. So those five are uh, water, oil, trees, uh, mining, seeds or food production and land. And I think that nonviolence is very relevant for the question of the environment because it can offer us a vision of a different kind of world, where people can act from the belief that we are all interconnected. And from that follows kind of naturally, I think, a respect for nature, and respect for biodiversity, as well as cultural diversity, and uh, empathy and cooperation. So, yes. yeah, to me, the destruction of the environment is really a symptom of the, the violent culture that we currently have. And if you want to change that, I believe the only way is to use nonviolence and to to lay the foundations for a nonviolent world through nonviolent means.
0: So uh, we'd like to turn back to your work with the Dutch NGO Foundation for Active Nonviolence. Give us a sense of what the Dutch NGO Foundation for Active Nonviolence is, what, what it does, and your role in it.
2: Yeah, so um, I already shared with you the foundation story of the organization and which was almost 55 years ago so you could say that some of the people that were active back then are still active in the organization so however you could say that in those years in the 60s it was a very what you could say hot topic like many people were interested in non-violence um, probably also because of the whole civil rights movement and Martin Luther King. So, but then it really dropped when the Berlin Wall fell and people kind of called this new optimism. And uh, this really impacted the organization. So they started to have less and less uh, people that wanted to join the training. And then in 1996, they had to end their training activities. So they only continued with a magazine and some brochures and uh, a handbook that is nearly finished by now. So I contacted them in 2015 with a proposal to offer training to young people in Europe and I have been able to, to do that with the help of this organization. Uh, and since last year I'm also a board member and I'm hoping to renew the board and find uh, young people to kind of continue the work of
0: the organization. Nina Kubitz, you, you've had your own initiative in terms and, and you've called this initiative called Peace Power. Why Peace Power? We have why have you chosen to have your own initiative, your own organization and what is your mission, your vision for programmers?
2: So I initially had called my initiative towards a violent world and then only in the autumn of 2019 I made a combination between the words peace power. and uh, yeah, and then I decided to officially rename my website in the start of 2020. So I wanted to change the name because the word non-violence only only negates violence, but it doesn't really give a clear picture of its opposite. So I felt that uh, maybe peace power could do that. And because peace power proposes that there is a power that one can learn to develop um, by working towards peace through peaceful means. And the reason that I wanted to have my own initiative is because The organization, as I said, has mostly much older people involved. So I wanted to attract young people and have kind of uh, maybe my own independence. So to be able to have my own website that is all in English and not in Dutch. And yeah, talking about English though, there is the problem with the language that it's a bit unspecific. So uh, a lot of big words that in other languages are kind of broken down into different words. You don't break them down in English. So in Dutch the uh, or the foundation for active nonviolence was using the word uh, nonviolent power but in Dutch we have two forms of power so the one is power over which we call macht and the other is kind of closer to either individual or collective power and uh, it is called kracht so when you talk about nonviolent kracht it is already clear that There's never a power over, not in English, because there's only power. It can be also misunderstood as power over. But of course, that's not the meaning behind peace power.
0: Okay, Nina Kuvits. So in what countries do you offer training? What's the aim of those being trained? In what ways do you adjust your teaching and presentation to different cultures?
2: I've uh, offered trains in the Netherlands, uh, in the UK, Germany and Greece. And we have offered those to people from at least 20 different nationalities. So mostly European, but also from the Caucasus and the Middle East. And uh, actually, I've never adapted my trainings to a particular culture because um, they were always done in an intercultural group. So we took that opportunity to discuss the different um, cultural perceptions and to uh, look at different attitudes to conflict and violence uh, and non-violence, of course, and to gain a new perspectives. So I could say maybe more generally that I've learned that, for example, Southern Europeans, they think that they are more spontaneous and expressive and maybe um, therefore also more aggressive. But I don't really know if that's really true. Because if you look at the Netherlands, then people are very direct and a little bit blunt sometimes. So it can also be quite uh, aggressive, actually. And um, yeah, I think that in Southern Europe, compared to Northern Europe, the people are more group-oriented. So when you are more group-oriented, you may also have a bigger tendency to cooperate with one another. And that can be very positive for when you want to
0: resolve conflict. Interesting observation. So how do you learn to, quote, debunk common misconceptions of nonviolence, end quote? What kind of learning do you receive by working with such a variety of cultures, people and on-the-ground situations?
2: Um, Can I backtrack a little bit to the previous question? Because I think you also... You asked me something about what people learned during the training course, is that correct? Yes. So I just, I thought that maybe interesting to point out because people get really a new perspective on conflict, uh, which is that there are constructive ways to deal with it and uh, that it doesn't have to escalate to violence. And they also start to find uh, many more examples of violence uh, that they did not recognize before, because of the normalization of violence in most Western cultures. So I think that is one really important change. And also people get, of course, really practical tools that help them to integrate the principles of non-violence and to respond to conflict. So I can think of identifying people's needs and finding win-win solutions, reframing blame or judgment. And they can apply this in interpersonal relationships, but also at work. Some have, have even managed to teach it to kids in more simpler ways. And uh, one participant has mediated the conflict between two soccer teams in his city. And he actually convinced the leader of a youth gang to lead the gang. So which then resulted into the whole gang to fall apart.
0: Okay. So you worked closely with Veronica Pelikarić uh, of Peace bin in the U.S. Writing the book quote, "Engaging Nonviolence: Activating Nonviolent Change in Our Lives and Our World." Uh, you two put that together. Are there others who have worked with you? In what ways?
2: Um, yes, and do you want me to also answer the question of uh, the common misperception that you asked me before?
0: Yeah, like you mentioned earlier, that uh, your part of the definition of, of nonviolence is institutionalized violence. Most people look at violence and they automatically think, okay, well, they're talking about people being shot, physical violence. So, how do you uh, help people understand that there are uh, different kinds of violence?
2: Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, the uh, violence triangle helps people to understand that. But we also share some points from the work of Eric Chenoweth and uh, Maria Stephen, which is a very groundbreaking work that was published back in 2011. Uh, They made statistical comparisons of violent groups and non-violent groups. And this uh, really helps to debunk some common misperceptions about non-violence. So, for example, one of them is that... Takes a really long time. And these two researchers have statistically proven that nonviolent activists have reached their goals faster than most violent groups. Yes, and also that uh, they were more successful. So, actually, 53% of the nonviolent groups were successful in achieving their goals, and only 23% of the violent groups. So, that is something like uh, most people don't realize. Often it depends a bit on the culture. I think non violence is seen as weak because people only understand it as uh, refraining from violence. But and there is something I believe around what you could say, maybe toxic masculinity or our ideas about masculinity that has to do with being strong and uh, in some ways also being violent. So uh, I think that is. Something important to look into as well, and to say that acting non-violently also takes a lot of courage.
0: Yes, absolutely. We noticed that uh, here in the states, in the United States, um, the military uh, uses lots of ads. They talk about honor and esprit de corps because they're sophisticated-sounding words, but historians have pointed out that vocabulary is much about machoism it's it's they are masculine terms they're not word terms that are used by by women so it sounds yeah. honorable to put those in, in their ads but we need to do a little more uh, analysis of of how the military uses those terms to attract people to its joining Words so very um,
2: important in terms of what you what you say now i really think we have to break down expectation of men so to say to be violent and and all of that and um, also what you see a lot that is used in this kind of um, militarized settings is a language that's really dehumanizing in order to make it seem less bad somehow.
0: Yes, good point. So uh, let's get back to, you have worked closely with Briannica Pellekarik, uh, a peace man in the US, writing the book. Quote, Engaging nonviolence, activating nonviolent change in our lives and our world. You two put that together. Are there others you have worked with? In what ways?
2: Um, yes, I work with uh, Veronica Pelicerich and A. Ben, as you said. Uh, I already shared that I'm uh, cooperating with the Foundation for Active Nonviolence. And more recently, I started to cooperate with the Dutch Museum for Peace and Nonviolence. And by the way, they are also part of an international networks of peace museums. So that started because I uh, developed a peaceful earth game. And uh, this came into existence when I was into a seminar called Active Peace at Sintmore. It's an intentional community in Scotland. And they created something that was called the transformation game. So that was to help people uh, reflect on their lives and make different choices. And I thought that it would be very interesting to create a game specifically aimed at uh, activating people for peace. So my first idea was to to let participants practice with different skills, a bit like in a workshop. But so then I decided that this would be a little bit too complex, so instead I identified different topics and activists for people to, to work with those. So in each, there are nine missions in the game, and each uh, mission gives you the person and topic and five different suggestions for possible action. So the missions are food production, that's represented by Vandana Shiva, forest protection, which is from Wangari Nakai, Greta Thunberg is representing climate change, uh, Mohandas Gandhi, local economy, Martin Luther King, anti-racism, Malala Yousafzai, gender equality, Desmond Tutu, reconciliation, Chief Seattle Interconnectedness. And then the last mission is United Humans about cooperation. So with the Museum for Peace and Nonviolence, I'm bringing this game to uh, hopefully 10 different schools in this year.
1: Nene, you, uh, you described something as a culture of peace. Share with us what uh, that description would, uh, would be and, and how, how does it relate to conflict resolution?
2: Um, I think it relates to that because it shows that it's really important to make a cultural change. So we talked about cultural violence before. And uh, this culture of peace has eight different pillars, which are democratic participation, gender equality, tolerance and understanding, uh, human rights, disarmament and a free flow of uh, information sustainable economic and social development, and uh, peace education. So, for me, of course, peace education is um, the most important and the one that also involves conflict resolution, uh, gaining uh, an understanding of how violence works and what alternatives are available. And yeah, I already mentioned that the, there is a normalization of violence, and I think that it goes quite far So if you look at the world today, then you see that most of our culture is actually based on domination. You can think of domination of men over women, humans over nature, uh, companies um, and employees, etc. And also we can say that generally speaking, there is a belief that humans are selfish and competitive. But if we really look at human beings, I think that you can say that Maybe we became like that because we believe it. And uh, naturally, we actually have a capacity for empathy and a natural tendency to cooperate. Because if you look at how we have survived in groups, then those skills have been very crucial. And I think that we should emphasize that much more and uh, yeah, look into our beliefs, because our beliefs are really powerful. And through
0: changing them, we can create a culture of peace. So let me ask this question, Nina. So you, you've worked in Palestine. Uh, I would imagine that's seemingly uh, insurmountable restrictions and hurdles you have to deal with there. Uh, what's it like working in Palestine in the situation that's going on there, Israeli-Palestinian conflict?
2: So uh, living in Palestine made me of course become very aware of the privileged life that I had when I saw all the restrictions that Palestinians have and uh, one powerful experience was that uh, with my organization we were visiting families whose houses were destroyed by the Israeli army often just because they were in the wrong place so yeah they kind of relied on asking people to help them to rebuild their homes. And I was feeling really sad uh, that these people don't really have any rights or a basic thing like their home uh, freedom of movement, access to medical care, Uh, all those things are just taken away from them. And what surprised me was uh, how much they really appreciated that you just listened to their story. So I think that was partly because they, they welcomed the empathy, of course. But well, they also hoped that um, by telling their story to a foreigner, more people would get to know about their situation, because the media really pays very little attention to it. Yeah. So, in a way, I felt also some responsibility to share the story, and I'm happy I can share it with you today. But, yeah, I think that change is really uh, difficult in that part of the earth, because Of course, I I do know that uh, change is possible, but if you look at their situation, then you see that there's a huge power imbalance between Israel and Palestine, and of course the U.S. that supports the Israeli military. So um, with that kind of really powerful backing up, the Palestinians cannot do so much, and of course, specifically not through a violent way, um, but even not yeah, with non-violent means. So you also see that in the work of Janowitz and Stephen that I referred to earlier, they included four cases of occupation in their study, and none of them have been ended yet. So the Palestinians will have to be really creative, and I think that they will have to overcome a lot of um, psychological barriers to really believe in their own power. So you could say, or I had witnessed um, that Palestinians are very resilient. um, But I think that many people feel also defeated or powerless. And people who have many hardships in their life, they kind of lose the ability to dream and to imagine different possibilities. And that is really important if you want to change the situation that you are in. So for them to... To make a change, they need to find a ways to, to overcome those psychological barriers as well.
0: Absolutely. Sure.
2: What
1: are the most rewarding experiences you've had in peace work?
2: Oh, I haven't answered that question because I had uh, asked you what you were looking for specifically because it's such <laughs> a big question.
1: Oh, that's fine. That's fine. What uh, words of encouragement would you advise for those of us who are seeking solutions to violence and, and conflict resolutions? What What advice would you give?
2: I would say find out more about alternatives to violence and a culture of peace so that you can really start to actively contribute to these and make it possible. Um, humanity these days, I believe, is really at a crossroads. And uh, if you do not want to continue down the path of destruction that we are currently on, then it's really needed that you become active and that you contribute to create a new path um, towards a more peaceful world. So find ways to learn more about nonviolence. find training. I can recommend you some more books besides our study uh, study guide as well.
0: Yeah, give us those books.
2: Yeah, so I would uh, recommend all the books of Michael Nagler from the Meta Center. Um, also the book I uh, referred to Why Civil Resistance Works. That's great to learn more about um, nonviolent action. So, also the Center for Nonviolent Conflict and uh, the Swarthmore College that has set up a nonviolent database. So, you can really find many, many examples there. And I would want to recommend the work of Stellan Pindhagen, who was my thesis supervisor in Sweden, and the book from a colleague, uh, Kazu Haga, which is called Healing Resistance.
0: Okay. So listeners, we're out of time. Our guest today has been Nina Kubix, co-author of Engaging Nonviolence, Activating Nonviolent Change in Our Lives and Our World. Our program that features Nina Kubix will be repeated Tuesday, January 12th at 8 a.m. and Wednesday, January 13th at 6 a.m. You can listen to the live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. The Solutions of Balance program featuring Nina Kubix will be placed in our archives Wednesday, January 13th. To listen through our archives, just visit our website at forwardradio.org, scroll down to Program Archives, and then scroll down to Solutions of Balance program that features Nina Kubitz. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise and delight you, and may even challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Broadcast Schedule. Please respond to us with your thoughts and suggestions by visiting us at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us with Solutions to Balance. Thank you, Jim
2: and Jamie.